0: Duh
1: Intro music there. No. Oh. <laughs> so that was Kylan Reese on the what model is that? MD yeah. twenty.
2: It's an MD twenty.
1: Yeah. So that's the new octave mandolin that Kylan helped uh, create here, with uh, Pono. And Zach was playing a Pono so guitar.
0: Double 40
1: all right, let's get the mics right and levels set.
2: could just listen Let to me you. Know I I could could that.
0: <laughs> we just did. Oh, dude, I have so much that that you would just make everything better.
1: <laughs> yeah, you got Kylan to uh, help on uh, one of the sing the body. Elements.
0: Oh yeah, dude. Um, it was a uh, well. What's the correct term for the instrument? Did it lap steel or was it? Uh,
2: well, uh, the correct term. That's a really interesting question. I didn't yeah, want to talk it about up. that for like two days. <laughs> <laughs> or what do you, what do you call it? it? Big it's debate. Steel guitar. Okay. Steel guitar. My bad. i um, don't claim to be a Hawaiian steel guitar player. Although all steel guitars truly are Hawaiian steel guitars.
0: Oh, oh awesome. really? Hey, uh,
1: explain.
2: Um, wow. I don't know what s- That's
1: a, <laughs> 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 um, condense it down to
2: a minute <laughs> and One a minute. half. Are you going to edit this all or is this just rolling?
1: Yeah, I don't think I'm going to edit it.
2: Well, um, you know, the steel guitar, playing slide guitar in uh, popular American music, whether it's blues, uh, jazz, obviously Hawaiian, um, Mm. country, bluegrass, indie rock, you know, all of that really had its origin in uh, Hawaiian steel guitar music which took shape in the end of the 19th century, like 18, late 1880s is generally credited when Joseph Kukuku, who was attending Kamehameha schools, was from Laie, and he, different stories explain it different ways, but he um, discovered that by taking a comb or a railroad spike, depending on who you talk to, and sliding it across the strings, you got this really unique uh, vocal kind of effect. There's a great book that just came out called Kika How the Hawaiian Steel Guitar Changed the Sound of Modern Music. And it was written by a guy named John Troutman, who uh, went really in-depth on the history of the steel guitar. And um, it's a really fascinating history that really did change the world. B.B. Um, King, uh, the book starts out with B.B. King talking about how his earliest memories of uh electric guitar sounds were hawaiian steel guitar sounds um in his youth growing up in i think mississippi um but many people have forgotten that uh in the early part of the 20th century hawaiian music was the first huge wave of uh you know traditional popular music to invade america and just completely take over Um, really yeah.
0: Like so, like Hawaiian spoken too, or was or is this more the Yeah,
2: Hawaiian language songs, hula being danced and Hawaiian being sung and um ukulele's and steel guitars being played. Mm. Um so the the big project that I'm working on aside from um running the restoration business, um, is trying to write a book about this whole history of uh string string band traditions from Hawaii. Um starting in 1800s and going all the way up until the 1940s basically but yeah people kind of that's kind of a funny period of history like world war one era where many people it's kind of a blind spot in time Mm. you know where um nobody's really quite sure what happened there's no selfies yet yeah and that's (laughs) that no that's actually really true like the the technology uh, really shapes our perception of of the past and time like you know before the phonograph and before f- photography, it's all just this huge backstory that nobody really feels too sure talking about. Cause there's nothing to really compare it to in your hand hmm. or, um, but you know, the radio uh, didn't really start coming around until the 1920s. Um, you know, the film um, recorded music Edison, Thomas Edison kind of solidified the design of the phonograph in the 18 late 1870s but it didn't really become in popular use for another I don't know 20 30 years maybe so the the story that I've just fallen into from looking into this stuff is that Hawaii has been on the cutting edge of uh the sound of American music and in and, and thus Ameri- you know world music from the day one you know um and the contributions of uh hawaii have largely gone uncelebrated i think Mm. and unrecognized so this you know i'm doing i'm working on an exhibit with the bishop museum um and my my vision which i'm kind of pitching to them is two centuries of hawaiian strings from the ukeke to the ukulele and um you guys even have you heard of ukeke ever so there's this notion that hawaii didn't have traditional uh string instruments and um it's actually totally false there's an instrument called the nukeke, which is a, a plank of wood that's held in the mouth and strummed with a little uh, you know pick and it has three strings made from woven coconut fibers like imagine a fretboard in your mouth or like it's a kind of, like a little bit smaller it's kind of like have you ever heard of a jews harp yeah you know? that's what i was gonna say yeah so it, it's not um in and of itself, it doesn't have a lot of amplification, but you put it into your mouth and your skull and your (laughs) vocals and everything become, uh, the amplification process. So it's a very, um, I don't know if sacred is the right word, but it's very involved with Hawaiian culture and, um, the Bishop museum has a large collection of these, which I was privileged to go and assess their entire collection of ukulele and ukeke and string instruments. Um, they don't they don't have them displayed right they don't they don't they don't have many there's a couple things displayed um but that's what i really want to my goal is to bring an exhibit to the bishop um that just celebrates hawaiian string instrument history because it's kind of the center of the universe for f- for fretted stringed instruments really i think
1: <laughs> and how are you going about researching that
2: well I started so I mean as you know I I um bought the repair business from your dad almost 10 years ago is it nine years ago
1: has Has it been that long I don't know it's been a while
2: but um so I found myself just you know when I came to work for you for your dad in the middle of um Hawaiian string world you know I mean we had all the legendary performers and all the everybody aunties and uncles coming through with their old instruments and um, so I've been working here restoring these old instruments for you know the last I don't know 15 years or so 14 years something like that um and you know it's I guess in in my life it's become more and more interesting to, to try and figure out why why are instruments important like what aside from being fun to play and being cool and fun to collect, what, what do they really do for us in, in culture? And what I've kind of come up with is that they are, are, um, there are avenue to the past, you know, to, to the tradition and, um, the fact that people pass on instruments more than almost anything else, you know, maybe jewelry, um, what else what do people cherish more than string instruments or you know instruments in general um and it's because i really think it's because that they are magic you know they have they have a spirit and they have a connection to all of our parents grandparents great-grandparents or even great-great-grandparents um so i guess i started researching this stuff because i was um i play music too um And so I've been collecting instruments and restoring them. And um, I came across this guitar a few years back that I had the opportunity to purchase. And it was an old Martin guitar, um, a 0042 Martin guitar that was in really rough shape when I got it, but I just knew it was incredibly important. And it was inscribed in the bottom on the end strip, uh, property of Royal Hawaiian band, TH for Territory of Hawaii. And so I started digging. I started calling the Martin Guitar Company um, who, you know, we've been fixing their instruments for... Your dad was the warranty center for 30 years or something, right? So Mm. um, I already had that in. And the more I talked to them and the more I explained the research I was doing out here, um, the more enthusiastic they became to assist in the process. So I went back to Nazareth, Pennsylvania and worked in their archives. And, you know, they're a German family. In their sixth generation now um but this they, was like last year this is year before last and then i did go back again last year um but they kept records going back to the 1830s when cf martin the first came from germany and so they have ledger books when and when it was interesting to read in those books when he first came to new york he set up shop and he was doing exactly the same thing he was building instruments and running a repair shop So everybody who came into his store and bought like anything from a violin string to a case to a a tuner, you know, he would write it down, the cost. And um, so you can go back and kind of piece together what his life was like at those times. Um, But so the Martin Company just encouraged the research. And um,
1: how how different was Martin's guitar design at that point? Because, I mean, he was he the one that crossed over into steel strings?
2: Yeah, actually hand in hand with Hawaii, you know. That um that is a really key point in the evolution of the contemporary steel string guitar is that those very first production level steel string instruments were made out of koa for Hawaiian music for Hawaiian oh. playing in 1916, 17 or so.
1: So lending itself to the brightness that uh, they were looking yeah, for. for. Yeah, for volume.
2: there's this is mm-hmm. so all of this is pre PA system, right? There's no there's no electric amplification. So to go back one second, the the Martin company had in their museum a little thing about a guy named Makia Kealakai, who um, was a Hawaiian musician born in 1867, grew up in Honolulu, um, childhood friends with Joseph Kukuku, who is credited with inventing the steel guitar. Um, and... He was uh, sent to the boys reformatory school at age 12 for um, cutting class, you know, <laughs> the horrible offense of playing hooky in Hawaii and wanting to hang out down by the docks and play music. Um, but at the boys reformatory school, he met Henry Berger, who had been brought in to, te- to, you know, run the Royal Hawaiian Band and um, share, you know, the Western classical tradition through. Russian military band kind of style, band leading. And so Makia became his star pupil. And in the three years that he studied with Henry Berger, he learned to play trombone, piccolo, flute, steel guitar, piano, and to read and write and compose music. So when he graduated at age 15, he went on tour to San Francisco with the uh, Royal Hawaiian Band. And um, out of 50 bands in San Francisco at that band contest, the Royal Hawaiian Band won first place. So these guys had chops, you know. Mm. Um, But so the Martin Guitar Company was already telling a little bit, the little bit that they knew of Makia's life. Um, And Makia is important to the Martin Guitar Company because before the Martin Guitar Company ever built what became known as the Dreadnought Guitar for the Ditson Company, they had built Makia, two custom bigger than ever before guitars that they called the Kealakai model. And um, when I was at the Martin company, I found the actual wooden templates and paper templates that they used to make his guitars and written on the wooden template, it says use mold for Ditson dreadnought. So <laughs> mm. the Makia Kealakai jumbo guitar is the prototype dreadnought guitar, which as we all know, went on to become the most famous widely imitated and used uh steel string acoustic mm-hmm. guitar in the world so
1: was there um ever any documentation on the conversations between him and the martin company on how i've that
2: tracked down some and it's through like you know this is going on three years of digging through archives and um old newspaper articles but i've i've pieced together the the impetus for that that project uh, which is a really interesting story in and of itself um there Do they
1: gotta buy the book or <laughs>
2: <laughs> is there a different story that
0: that already existed for the Dreadnought?
2: Well, everybody thought that the Ditson company had designed that oh. that guitar, and the Ditson was kind of a so martin um would build instruments wholesale for other people to brand under their own names like the Wurlitz or Ditson Southern california music company um as you know Martin was trying to make ends meet for a long time this is through you know Uh world war one great depression they had a lot of hard years and um the interesting thing so this is going to be part of the book for sure but the history of the the evolution of the martin guitar company and the royal family in hawaii and all of the hawaiian musicians who grew up in and around the monarchy and then went on to travel and spread hawaiian music all over the world um that's like a hand-in-hand relationship that where you have the oldest family owned um, like preeminent guitar maker in, in America on the East coast building custom instruments and designing instruments with the only monarchy ever to be part of the American, you know, diaspora, I guess you could say uh, on the farthest Western boundary of America. I mean, that's like, that's an amazing story. And, there was a great book that came out too um, recently the little the little instrument that saved a guitar giant where it's all about how the ukulele through the great depression basically saved the Martin Guitar Company and they were selling more ukuleles than they were guitars Um, isn't
1: that interesting like during a depression time is when like ukulele sounds (laughs) it's like alcohol and ukuleles oh yeah yeah. definitely so that's that's really interesting and you gotta kind of you know speculate about the whole situation like i imagine the Ditson company saying like hey can you make us something like a, maybe a little bigger it'll be mm-hmm. louder and then mm-hmm. like martin being like oh yeah i got that mold from uh making the ones
0: yeah so be, pri- um, before that what was the most popular size guitar before the drill was it all like parlor size
2: type yeah and you got to think too that steel strings were not the norm at this time, yeah, you know, still most classical. It or was st- kind of coming out of the classical tradition, which is why people love pe- fingerstyle guitar players love Martin guitars from the teens and tw- into the twenties because they're built light uh-huh. for gut strings, and if you put steel strings on them, they really pop. And you know, if they. And so, survive. when did the
1: steel string start? Well,
2: 1917 is I think when the first Hawaiian Martin guitars went into production that were exclusively steel string, because obviously to play a steel, you need the steel strings.
1: Um, so everything from
2: 1883 to they had done a few trials and a few tests and mm-hmm. new custom custom options for people. Um,
1: but yeah, that's but, why they're all slot head and they all mm-hmm. all their tops pulled up because people started putting steel yeah, strings. Out right. of them. which
2: is the same thing with Stradivarius violins. You know, Strads were all built for gut strings, and then as concert pitch, you know, raised in contemporary era, and uh, people started needing longer. Next, for more power and steel strings uh, There's very few You know, Italian violins That haven't been reworked To accommodate those, those changes But that's why they sound so good I mean, the best luthiers in the world Have been working on them for 300 years So, huh. Do you still have that guitar? Yeah, I do So, so that guitar The Royal Hawaiian Band guitar is, is a whole other story in and of itself that was, It was made in um, 1934 And while at the Martin Company archives, I found all the original logbook entries from the day it was, began at Martin, actually from the day it was ordered uh, through the Bergstrom Music Company. And what happened was the city and county of Honolulu under Frank Vieira, who was leader of the Royal Hawaiian Band, approved the purchase of new band instruments for the Royal Hawaiian Band. And um, they wanted, at that point in 1934, they wanted not only to have a big brass band, kind of military band style band, but they wanted to have a string band ensemble. Um, And the string band ensemble in the Royal Hawaiian Band was when they sang predominantly Hawaiian language songs um, with ukulele guitar, upright bass, violin, um, and steel guitar later. Steel guitar came later. Um, So they wanted four guitars, two double O's, two single O's, and they wanted the fanciest ones they could get. So they got 42 style with abalone inlaid all around the top. Brazilian Rosewood back and sides. Um, and they ordered four of them. And every band photo you've seen since 1934, these guitars are in the front of the band. You know, they're proud to have these instruments. And I did find letters from Frank Vieira to um, the Martin Company thanking them for the string, oh, true. the string on uh, the, the guitars and saying that they had great pleasure playing them for Franklin Roosevelt when he came mm-hmm. here in a private concert yeah and i actually have a victor record an old you know phonograph style record of the royal hawaiian band from 1934 playing those guitars and singing and what was the action like it on those guitars (laughs) pretty smooth yeah yeah Probably. i mean the one that i have it it needs a full full restoration um but you can see in the photographs they're all playing them you know spanish style they're not playing them slide style Mm. and uh, yeah, I mean, I can go so many directions from here.
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> were were they involving ukulele at that point too? Yeah, like right. a style five in there. Yeah,
2: no, yeah, they had, and that and the Royal Hawaiian band at that point had Martin five yeah. yeah, but that, that, so you know, the interesting thing, Makia, who um, a lot of people here in Hawaii know as uh, a celebrated composer of Hawaiian music. Um, but few people here know that he also basically had a hand in inventing the dreadnought guitar, and through the research that I've done, I've, I've really—it's come clear—it's become clear to me that he is the common thread from like monarchy era Hawaii string band traditions and glee clubs all the way through to World War II era um, string band music being popular in Hawaii. Um, he was traveling with the Royal Hawaiian band through the 1880s, 1890s. And then in 1893, when he was with the Royal Hawaiian band and annexation was happening, the, uh, provisional government made this, um, decree that if you wanted to stay and be a citizen of Hawaii, you had to sign an oath of allegiance to the provisional government, which, you know, for the Hawaiian community was like outrageous. You know, It, it was basically like pledge your allegiance to the, uh, the over you know overthrowers or whatever so um makia and 99 percent of the royal hawaiian band refused and so they were fired and at that point the the, uh, provisional government renamed the royal hawaiian band the provisional government band and banned hawaiian language songs from being sung in the band so (laughs) if you can imagine now you have the band that was started by the monarchy no longer allowed to sing Hawaiian songs. And so it's really interesting what happened. You had 40 Hawaiian musicians. Um, they took a year, 1894, they took and did free concerts for tips all around Honolulu, saved up money, bought their own instruments, went to San Francisco and started a nationwide tour, calling themselves the Cabana Lahui which is like, the, you know, the national band or the Hawaii national band or the band of the people. And um, they traveled up and down the West Coast all the way through, this is like 1890s Wild West. They took trains, you know, oh. through cowboy country <laughs> and uh, basically improvising gigs as they went. Um, but they were really good. So by the end of that year, they were making as much as um, John Philip Sousa, who was like the the, you know, Brass band king of America at the time, um, so that's like that's a really cool story to me. It tells you about the the where the minds of these musicians were at the at that time. You know, extremely political, extremely educated, conscious, um, articulate. You know, well, virtuosos really. It's, and yeah.
1: it's not. Yeah, they were far from savages on some deserted island. They had their own monarchy for a long time oh my god well you know i mean you know i mean they they uh, they were intelligent you know grown-ups that like didn't want to be dominated by outside forces yeah and
2: hawaii at that point was arguably probably one of the most literate communities in the world Um, with many many hawaiian language newspapers you know i think the average person in honolulu at that point probably was tri or you know trilingual at least um and they and they, you know, but and they just kind of killed the Hawaiian
1: language there for they a tried. long time. i mean there's they tried in the yeah. last maybe 20 years there's been a revival but well yeah they really 30, tried but.
2: and i you know part of this research project it's it's to me it's a, it's a really wonderful way to look back at history and retell history through music and through instruments you know because uh instruments don't lie you know if there was an instrument here in In the late 19th century, it has a story behind it because someone brought it here or someone built it here and someone played it here. So when we start to really delve into and look at what the diversity of string instruments was in Hawaii in the latter half of the second half of the 19th century, you have um, full chamber music ensembles. You have opera music, classical piano, Um, the traditional Hawaiian band, like the ensemble at that point was... Anything from ukulele, uh, violin, banjo, cello, saxophone, flute. Um, So I have a couple recordings from like early 1900s of this music and it's just, it'll blow your mind. It sounds like nothing you've quite heard before, Mm -hmm. you know. And the cool thing is these songs that they were playing are still being sung today by people like Cyril Pahinui or, um, you know, there's a whole no- younger generation now, um, the Lum Brothers, who are are taking these old songs and keeping them in the the consciousness. Um,
1: Still but, good music, but it it's yeah. like stands the test of time. It's oh, interesting yeah. too how um, like music transcends things like language to where like Hawaii could just get all of these influences mixed with you know the the music that had been brewing in their culture for yeah. many years. Cause you, you hear in a lot of that early, um, uh, those early bands, like almost like, you know, the gypsy jazz influence too, or Mm -hmm. just all of these different influences that kind of came through and like Hawaiian musicians made it their own and their own style. But that's really interesting that they were able to, um, just go take on the mainland and do really well they, because, were the I mean, they were the stars. They were the translates, you know. It's like it, yeah. you can do songs with Hawaiian words because, you know, you don't have to understand everything to understand mm. it, you know.
2: There was a tour uh, that the Royal Hawaiian Band did with a couple string band ensembles up the West Coast in 1904, 05. And um, a lot of these guys ended up just staying in, like, Tacoma, Seattle because um, they could make a pretty good living teaching Hawaiian music and playing but um the the band was famous for being one of the most exciting bands to see because they not only did Hawaiian music they did western classical uh arrangements of big band music they did um uh, they did everything and they would play every every musician in that band probably played three or four instruments, so they would switch they would change, and all of a sudden have a completely different sound um and and again, it's all acoustic right all acoustic yeah. all acoustic so wow. It really, you know, when you listen to early um, early recordings of string band players, there's like a real power and drive. And those guys knew how to get tone and volume out of their instruments, which is why you see this this progression of instruments needing to be bigger and bigger and bigger because um, the concerts were getting to bigger and bigger audiences. I mean, if you think about a pre-PA system, the reason the brass band, all John Philip Sousa's marches and the military band was so popular is because if you have more than i don't know 50 people assembled and people are talking or there's background noise you need brass instruments to play um but these these hawaiians were on the front lines of that playing (laughs) you know early ukuleles the small what we now consider to be kind of antiquated but the early hawaiian style uh soprano ukuleles which interestingly were tuned a d f sharp b they weren't tuned g c e a um
0: is that what is that? Uh, I was it's like one like step step one step above. Step up.
1: Wow. Yeah, it gives a little bit more power too, yeah. and that mm-hmm. probably had something to do with it.
0: Yeah,
2: and the, what they refer to as the tarot patch um, by 1911-14 f- was being tuned GCEA, which is, I think, a little bit bigger. You know, it's it's hard to really nail down these terms at this point, but GCEA. Yeah, that's what that's ukulele. it's like standard ukulele yeah. tuning. Yeah, now. But, you know, you mentioned something like how uh, the provisional government had really tried to squash Hawaiian language. And um, it's it's really it's impossible to do this musical research and not at the same time be studying politics and political history, you know, because these guys, when you think about what they were up against um, and what they accomplished, it's really remarkable. You know, um, traveling, you know, across the United States um, in like trains and tent shows playing outdoors in uh, improvised spaces. And then eventually um, playing in concert halls, sharing the stage with people like Rachmaninoff and um, their music was being presented in a really f- uh, not formal is not the right word, but like a very respected way. You know, it wasn't like, even like Appalachian string bands from the same period were being presented in a much less dignified way, but the Hawaiians, um, and their music was,
1: yeah. And really, I respected. Mean, you, you couple natural talent with, um, an actual study of mm-hmm. Western, you know, um, uh, yeah. classical music right. and all of that stuff. Like even like, uh, Kalani and, mm, yeah. um, uh, you know, uh, they, they all had been trained properly. Like yeah. they wrote songs oh, they were yeah. writing for real.
2: Absolutely. I think, and you know, you hear this incredible virtuosity coming out of the early, uh, Hawaiian virtuosos and, um, it's because they had studied the greats. They had all studied all the classical repertoire. They had studied all of the, you know, other folk traditions of Tahitian and, um, you know, different kinds of music that were populating the islands. The whole sailor whaling culture here brought in a whole other mix of, um, Mm. of styles of music that you know I, I there's one story I just recently came across um I've become friends with a family here uh whose last name is Schulmeister and um Joseph Schulmeister came to Hawaii in 1893 from Austria and he was a 16 year old stowaway on a boat um he wanted to leave Austria there was a war going on i believe and he was trying to get to america so they found him stowed away on this boat and they put him to work and they said you're not getting off in new york you're coming all the way to hawaii so he came out to honolulu and um he and a friend snuck off the boat hid out in punch bowl watched waited to the boat to leave harbor and then he stayed and he became um sugar plantation chemist and why and i eventually and also was a pretty much self-taught musician who learned through mail order correspondence, uh, music classes. And, um, he played many instruments, but one of the instruments that he loved was the Zither, which is, um, like an auto harp. It's, yeah. it's like an auto harp instrument that you play on your lap and it has frets on one side and you play like this. And there's an old newspaper article, uh, where his buddy wrote in and said, you know, um, the Hawaiians would come and pick up Joseph in a hack and drive him to their luau's way out in the country, and he would play the zither for the luau's. (laughs) And, um, And there's another article that talks about the zither having been a major inspiration for the Hawaiian steel guitar. And I don't know, you know, a lot of people want to nail down the first, who did things first, and that's interesting, but to me it's more interesting to say and to realize that the curiosity and the openness of the mindset of the time was like you've got a new instrument you just showed up here on a boat let's jam like let's mm-hmm. hang out cool like there was no <laughs> like there was no like oh that's not any part of this or that or um and i i i feel like that open-mindedness and um a lo- i mean a lot of love, love of at music that yeah. point I everything mean, was new you
1: know? yeah i mean well maybe violin or piano had been like you know Around a while, but all of these different stringed instruments, yeah, were uh, were popping up hey, at the time. That? Like all of the mandolin, uh, s- you know, style instruments were they were creating their own. Yeah, even whole bands. I mean, oh yeah, and those were all Gibson at the time.
2: No, I, well, actually, the the mandolin tradition in Hawaiian music is a whole other <laughs> book. But at the same time that you know there was zither and violin and cello and saxophone being played. There were mandolin orchestras in uh, in Honolulu and all of Hawaii. Um, Explain that because some people well, haven't
1: haven't seen that part of history.
2: Um, so, I guess a good different example.
1: Different sizes and all that.
2: Yeah, so mandolins um, were kind of the electric guitar of the. Uh, maybe they really hit their stride, I think, in the eighteen in the nineteen teens. But in the 18 late 1800s, mandolin orchestras were a huge popular thing. So you'd have mandolin, mandola, which is the same size as a viola, um, and you'd have sometimes mandocello or even mando bass, which is a ridiculous-looking instrument. But um, <laughs> they had them and they played them, and um, so you'll see, you know, maybe 20 to like 40 people um, wow. sitting in these old photos with all mandolins and they would. <laughs> so if you look at the, um, the old newspapers from the late 1800s in Honolulu, you'll see the opera house would have these musical reviews where they'd have a traveling performer come through. They'd have a local mandolin orchestra. They'd have a local singer. And, um, the opera house was right across the street from the Ilani palace. So the, the, the monarchy would come and sit and listen to their songs being performed. Um, and uh, one great person who is a great example of this whole thing is a guy named Ernest Ka'ai who, um, a few you know, a lot of people have heard of, um, as one of the very first ukulele teachers and world travelers who spread the ukulele. But what a lot of people don't know is that he was a childhood mandolin prodigy who by age like 11 or 12 was touring San Francisco, giving virtuoso like solo mandolin concerts. And, um, so he had a whole music school in Honolulu. He printed sheet music, taught and organized bands who he would hire out. And he took off in 1911, I believe, um, and traveled through the South Pacific to Australia, China, um, all over the place. I think he even made it to India. Um, performing? Performing with yeah. his with his family who were all uh, dancers and musicians. And... Um, I think he would travel, and everywhere he went, he would set up um, teaching people how to play Hawaiian music and how to dance, you know. Cultural. Who's that?
1: Yeah, I, I've seen his, um, like, that first instruction book that yeah, he, and right. I, I, I thought he was a guitar player before. He played but everything. He played yeah. guitar,
2: mandolin, ukulele. And he wrote songs, he had his um, own line of ukes, even I think. yeah, yeah, he was involved like a lot of these early guys in the manufacture, the early Hawaiian manufacturer of koa ukuleles. but so he you know that whole that whole history in Hawaiian music of the mandolin is uh really interesting to me as a as a mandolin player, obviously. Um, but the mandolin and the violin are tuned the same way, and what the other thing you come across in early Hawaiian music is the violin. And um, these guys who were playing for the, uh, the military band, which was what the Royal Hawaiian, ba- Hawaiian band was called early on, or the Royal Hawaiian band, they were all playing Western classical music and the songs of the, uh, the monarchs. And then they were going back and jamming and playing you know, with whoever the sailors. And so the, the violin found its way into t- the traditional Hawaiian uh, ensemble As the lead instrument, this is before steel guitar was even happening, you know. So the flute and the violin, if you listen to these early recordings, are taking the role of the steel guitar, playing the line in between the vocals, um, kind of playing backup Mm -hmm. parts. And it's interesting to me as a musician that the timbre of the violin and the flute together, it sounds very similar to a steel guitar. It's like a very strong fundamental Mm -hmm. um, kind of tone.
1: And with that airy yeah, uh, you know, right? presence behind exactly. it with the yeah. flute. Yeah, exactly. oh, that's
2: interesting. So I came across this piece of history one time that Joseph Kikuku's cousin, um, Samuel K. Nainoa, was a violinist, and they would hang out. They had a duo. The, the, you know, this is the, in, the guy who's credited with inventing the Hawaiian steel guitar was hanging out with his cousin who was a, a violin player, a f- Hawaiian fiddle player, and they would perform together steel guitar and fiddle um and when i started to listen and think about it you know the vocabulary the musical vocabulary of the steel guitar it almost has phrasing similar has very yeah, similar like the way the bow works inflection and, mm. double stops you know um, you almost
1: skip strings with the you yeah. know picking in the slide that, right in a similar fashion and
2: on a real geeky musical level like the mandolin is tuned in fifth so when you play two strings next to each other you're playing a much larger interval than if you're playing a guitar and ukulele. And so the steel guitar, how they have that real, you know, jumping kind of quality between notes, it, you, one might almost say it's kind of emulating what a violin or a mandolin might do if playing the same melodies and chord progressions. No doubt
1: the licks yeah. transferred somehow, you know, and then, you know, yeah. people just uh, take styles from other people yeah. and those things become part of the sound.
2: Definitely, and what's what's really funny to me is that when the steel guitar found its way into like western swing or blue, not bluegrass, but like country music, it got it knocked a lot of fiddle players out of business because what three fiddle players used to do now one steel guitar player could do (laughs) by playing you know chord melody kind of stuff up and down the neck.
1: But they all kind of took the cue from Hawaii on that guy. Oh yeah,
2: definitely. That's without a doubt. That's documented without a doubt. I mean. I when I, I found these other letters at the Martin Archives that really blew my mind. Um but you guys have heard of Mother Maybelle Carter, you know, whose daughter June Carter married Johnny Cash. And Maybelle Carter of the Carter family is kind of considered the um the first great um act in country what mm. went on to become country music. And she and uh the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers, Jimmy Rogers is also credited with being kind of the godfather of all, all country music in America. Both Mabel Carter and Jimmy Rogers in 1927 wrote to the Martin guitar company asking for them to send them ukuleles and Hawaiian steel guitars because they were using them in their live shows. And so these, you know, the Carter family was from a very rural part of um, Appalachia in uh, Virginia Jimmy Rogers, I think, was from uh, Meridian, Mississippi. But that tells you, by 1927, if both of those groups had grown up playing and listening to Hawaiian steel guitar music to the point that they could perform it, um, it just is an indication of the level that Hawaiian music had become the folk music and the traditional music of, you know, the United States.
1: How, how it influenced Americana. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Lola, well, that's from the the Royal Hawaiian band touring around and that trickling out and yeah, spreading. It totally. got really that quick. And totally. then
1: once, once recording started, you know, being made and yeah. it makes its way everywhere.
2: And the Hawaiians were, uh, kind of on the leading edge of, you know, <laughs> it's a really, f- another funny story. Thomas, uh, Edison, you know, who's kind of invented the phonograph. Um, some of the earliest people to record for him were these Hawaiian steel guitar players. And, um, Henry Ford was an early big fan of Hawaiian music. (laughs) (laughs) He heard them in 1915 in San Francisco, um, you know, coming out of the 1906 earthquake, uh, where San Francisco was basically leveled. They were, you know, trying to find a way to get back in the swing of things. So they built this entire second city where they had this huge international, the Panama Pacific international exhibition, which was a world's fair basically where they had, um, everybody come and show off what they were designing and building and playing. And the Hawaiians kind of stole the show really. Um, yeah. Ernest kai was, Ernest was, was From that,
1: that f- point on that, like it became this craze, right? Yeah. I like it was like craze. 1915, I think.
2: 1915. Yep. In San Francisco. Um, and you know, Makia and, and a handful of other Hawaiians h- had been living on the West coast since about 1905, kind of laying the groundwork for that huge, um, upswell of interest, but you know, Macchio was living in Portland, Oregon, Los Angeles. I have an address for him in Juarez, Mexico. Um, these guys were nonstop traveling acoustic musicians.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's such it's such an amazing thought to think, uh, you know, that version now would be like if we just lost power mm. yeah. <laughs> and if, you know for for like a good month. Yeah, like Puerto Rico, you're not going to get any uh, dance shows. <laughs> right. Gonna, I mean, right. so what do you got to do? Yeah. who's got instruments and that was the mindset all, at all times the power is out right you, you you need to do a show you need to grab more people with more instruments yeah and to create to create a sound like projecting outward you know? exactly that's yeah. such a and you, things were Try. always like good on some
1: level here to where like people had the ability to relax and enjoy music i think you know um i mean yeah. in a lot of places in the world like half or more of the time you're Trying to prepare for winter when things mm-hmm. are going to be harder to access. So they have more time. to...
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: I, th- I think it has something. And Their instruments didn't track crack because of a, the humidity. It's a, it's a beautiful <laughs> place, inspiring. Probably even more beautiful at that point, definitely. But
2: and a real like uh, cosmopolitan crossroads. You know, I mean, this was there were. It was probably more diversity in ha- in Hawaii in at this point than you could argue probably anywhere. You know, I mean, these any port city had such an influx and and density of cultures and everybody was playing music and everybody was, there were bands, um, strolling the streets of Honolulu playing for tips, um, going through neighborhood to neighborhood to bar to bar. Um, and I think, I think it really, it's true. It was, it was their recreation and it was endorsed and inspired by the monarchy. I mean, you know, all the, the Kings and Queens were, and princes and princesses were writing love songs and, um,
1: and that that was like the like um a, a lot of the people that were coming here um you know the people of Madeira where the ukulele came from um they would do that same thing they mm-hmm. would stroll yeah. the streets right. with guitars and and machetes yeah. and all of their different folk instruments right. and they just loved it and it mm-hmm. was an island paradise similar to Hawaii and and yeah. so they bring their culture and then totally. you know other people bringing all of theirs and everybody kind of adding to the, the mix yeah. in their own way. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really interesting. Cause like David Kalakawa was like playing piano and guitar, like well mm-hmm. before ukulele yeah. even showed up on the scene. Right. And it's like, they show up with this, you know, little half size guitar and he loved it. You know yeah. I mean? That was his thing all the way to the end. I mean, he, he didn't live all that much longer after that, but for the yeah. remainder of his life, um, that was like what he would travel with and, and yeah. his favorite thing. And it kind of reminds me of what um, happens to a lot of guitar players still, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, something <laughs> comes along, it's fun. Yeah. It's even more travel portable and, Definitely. you know, has a good sound.
2: I, I was, so I was in um, Cremona, Italy earlier this year, which is the European center of violin making, you know, Strata Stradivarius from there. Um, all the great Italian violin makers had something to do with Cremona at one point. Um, and today there's, I think three or four, there's one big, uh, public violin making school there. And then there's a bunch of private academies of violin making. There's two museums dedicated to the violin there. Um, and there's more luthiers per city block in Cremona almost than anywhere else in the world. Maybe Honolulu is the only place where there's more uh instrument builders per capita than Cremona, but um it was really cool to see how the city had gotten behind um that that history you know and really promoted it and I think that I think we could do a better job but is, is in there like Hawaii? a
1: sort of a um hierarchy and it built in like don't a lot of the european um um communities that uh, you know build classical style instruments isn't there like um i mean it's not just like anybody can jump in and and do it or you yeah, have to like work bit, your it, way up and it
2: might be a little bit more organized and a little bit more uh regimented but um they've been you know uh, the guild system in in europe was was something that um evolved out of you know people trying to control or you know manage commerce and um I think being so close to so many other countries where everybody, as soon as you had a good idea, would start doing it, you had to kind of try and protect your uh, your craft, you know? That's why, actually, that's why Martin left Germany was because he, w- he, w- he was not being allowed to build uh, guitars because he was part of, I think, the Violin Makers Guild, right. which didn't allow guitar making, something like that. But um, I'm trying to work, I'm working with a senator here to try and get a sister city relationship established between honolulu and cremona and if for nothing else just just to draw attention and celebration to hawaii being a real center for the evolution of lutherie um you know we have uh, aside from the ukulele and the steel guitar we can now say that the dreadnought guitar had a you know and steel string guitars had a hand hawaii had a hand in that um and,
1: and they were kind of the birthplace of. Uh violin making and that sort or cremona yeah Yeah. well
2: yeah yeah and still to this day i mean we have probably more hobbyist luthiers in hawaii than almost anywhere and we have more family this is a cool detail to me we have more family-run ukulele companies you know than anywhere in the world i mean look at all the great the major ukulele manufacturers in hawaii the kanilea Koolau, kamaka they're all family businesses that's like that's <laughs> a tradition that um <gasps> most people don't want to do what their
1: dads are doing <laughs> yeah. but it's it's, not, kind, it's of kind of a dying tradition it's right? kind of a good job so it's like well
2: but i think that's cool that that's survived here in hawaii because that's you know the martin guitar company coming out of the european tradition is in its sixth generation now um, and there's something i do think there's something that's passed down from parents to children in in the craft in the making of you know beautiful things i think oh yeah
1: i mean that's that's what you c- you're taught you know you only know what you're taught and yeah that's how you learn what you know nowadays you can i don't know i don't know if those kind of traditions are going to survive
2: <laughs> we'll see we'll yeah. see a lot's changing a lot's changing really fast but I, I think
1: you know i mean kamaka's on there like fifth or sixth generation mm-hmm. and yeah. going strong
2: yeah definitely
1: my son definitely,
2: will be. <laughs> <laughs> but Noah's son is up, up in here, working the CNC machine, yeah, sanding wood, I know, isn't that cool, yeah,
1: he's smart, yeah. so tell tell us about, um, the creation of the octave Octo- Mandolin,
2: well, th- you know, that was, um, I moved here from Oklahoma, um, where I was playing mandolin in a bluegrass band, traveling around the Midwest, and, um, I hadn't really had any experience with ukuleles. I had worked at the Santa Cruz Guitar Company, which builds you know beautiful high-end acoustic instruments. So when I showed up at uh, Ko'olau, I had some experience spraying lacquer, but I wanted to learn more restoration. Um, that was a passion of mine, and um, I had I ca- actually came to to get a mandolin fixed. <laughs> that was the first time <laughs> I showed up at the door. Was I had a, I had shipped a mandolin here that the headstock cracked off of and um, the guy I bought it from offered to pay to have it fixed, so I came and Noah fixed it, and we struck up a conversation. Um, But, you know, then I I came, I progressed to working for for the Kitakas family, and as a mandolin player in ukulele world, it just, it sort of made sense. And then, sadly, it took me (laughs) 10 years to get around to, um, you know, working with your dad to put it into actual form, but... um, it makes sense. You know, there's the tipple which is um started out as a South American instrument that the Martin Guitar Company started making, I think, in nineteen twenty something. Um so there's a precedent for you know, paired strings on a ukulele shaped body. Steel. Um, yeah. Steel strings, yeah. And there's actually there's a predecessor called the Mandolinetto that um never quite got popular because it's more of a soprano size ukulele body with steel strings. And instead of having a pin bridge, it has a floating bridge, which hmm. the tension, the resonance, it, it never really. On a what? On a soprano? On, on like a soprano Whoa. body. Arch top? Yeah. Flat top, oh. which is what's yeah. weird. Oh. It's got an oval hole, floating bridge. And, you know, so it's kind of, it's, it, it's never oh, like been a really popular thing. Tiny instrument. mini Selmer kind of looking. Exactly, yeah. Hmm. And it's real bright. It doesn't have any real depth. Um, so I thought, you know, why not do the tipple thing? and the ukulele thing for players today who want um, new different sounds, you know, and the cool thing about this instrument is that there's no rules. Like if you want to do alternate yeah. tunings, I mean like <laughs> Kavika Kayapo, he, he took one, oh, yeah. he made put it, it in a, a Gabby Pahinui slacky tuning. And it's like, okay, there's yes. a whole new tradition of, you know, music being invented right there. Led Ka'apana the same way we, I, we gave him a, uh, a solid body electric version of the octave oh, mandolin, really? And he just, put it in an open tuning and all of a sudden it was like make just it, captivating beautiful amazing vibrations yeah. yeah so and you know the the cool thing to me about this instrument is that it is the evolution of things that have been happening in hawaii for 150 years yeah um, and it also you know i, I was going to go into a little bit why i think it's important to connect to honolulu and cremona as sister cities is because it kind of It causes people to rethink a lot of the history that um, Hmm. has been swept under the rug with a real particular and I think, you know, intentional colonial agenda of like retelling the story, you know, of Hawaiian history to where. um, Like what what you said, you know, if, if there was nothing happening here in Hawaii, then annexation was kind of a good thing. And if, if people didn't have their thing together, but that's not the case at all. And if and the music tells the story very differently. You had, um, you had a whole tradition and um, complex musical culture happening here. And that doesn't happen in isolation. That tells you the mindset of the people who were well-read, educated, you know, thoughtful. Happening. I mean,
1: they had adopted at, by that that point a lot of you know Western cultures. But yeah, there was, yeah. there was no, um, you know, no reason to do away with their true you yeah. know, heritage and, and the, you know, like all of the, um, the chanting and drum
2: style stuff that yeah. that they have in their history too. That that's like but that's, amazing style. It's totally amazing. And that's, and I think that that's been whitewashed as well in saying that you know, a lot of people will tell you, Oh, there was no melody in Hawaiian music or there was no harmony. There was no string instruments and it's just all not true. I mean, um, uh, the kumahulas that I've talked to about that early traditional Hawaiian style of music, there's whole traditions of, of chanting where there's two voices, you know, kind yeah, of doing in, harmonies. In a, yeah. Singing with each other.
1: And well, plus too, they were telling us like they were telling their history in those things. Like it was like, uh, I forget. Like it, 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 had a lot to do with the lineage
2: and like carrying the message, you know, it's like I was saying, it's the connection with the past. The musicians, the musicians are the time travelers, you know, they're the, (laughs) the, the track, the keepers of the, the stories, I think. Um, But so connecting, you know, Honolulu and Cremona, Honolulu and Cremona, um, draws that attention back to the fact that Hawaii was a sovereign kingdom with, relationships and shared histories and evolutions with places as far away as uh as Europe and you know Asia and everywhere really I think.
1: <laughs> yeah and that they you know made a significant impact on music as we know it.
2: Oh yeah. I mean yeah and I think so, that, so I think that that that's those these stories need to be um celebrated and shared because people need to know. And you know, what's funny is that when I, when I talk to people like repair clients who are, you know, maybe like fishermen or plumbers, or they're not musicians, but they, they've had their Martin guitar handed down for a couple of generations and they know. And when I tell them that, Oh, you know what? That started out that dreadnought D 18 you have that you got from your dad started out as a Hawaiian instrument. <laughs> they're like, Oh yeah. Figures. Yeah. They're not surprised. It's like, they know and I think that um, that's really interesting to me that there's so many kinds of knowing you know there's so many kinds of knowledge this is something I have a friend uh, Noelani Arista who's a, a professor at University of Hawaii in Hawaiian language and studies and we were having this conversation the day about how you know western um, I don't know what you want to call it like academic culture has this really fixed concept of knowledge like knowledge is in books and it's taught and it's handed down and you learn it and you memorize it and then you like exert it on the world. But I think that, um, you know, voyaging cultures or Polynesian cultures, um, have a very different concept of knowing things. And, um, I, you know, it's definitely not my intention in all of this research to ever try and speak for a culture that I'm not part of, but it's just, it's really interesting to, Step outside of the mold of how I've sort of been raised and try to see mm-hmm. things differently, you know. And I think it's—I really think it's—it's it's important to let the Hawaiians tell these stories and let let the culture speak for itself more than anyone else trying to. It discover sounds like anything. you should get
1: her or somebody like that to get together yeah. with you to do. Yeah, you know, co- we are. We're doing it. it.
2: We're, we just wrote a grant to. Um, oh wow. To get funding to to pay translators to go through, because you know the Hawaiian language newspapers are the greatest resource for this kind of um, scholarly work, because all these musicians who are traveling the mainland um, were writing letters home, the and they e- were being published in the newspapers. The
1: English was just fake news. <laughs> yeah,
2: <Not laughs> even then, a- the English. Was- <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, no, it's interesting. Like if you read the, I have accounts of the exact same, like the Cabana Lahui tour. I have accounts in the English p- papers and I have accounts of it in the Hawaiian language papers. And it's very different stories. You know, it's like, yeah. Okay. Let's get this translated. Cause this is, this <laughs> is, the, this is these people speaking for themselves.
1: It's crazy how much uh, history Recorded false, like uh you know, at least partly in the propaganda intentionally, yeah you know, like
2: so much of this is just blatant, well, colonial, there was an agenda industrial and, you know, complex racist agenda,
1: yeah, yeah, there was so. less fact checkers
2: yeah yeah well, that that
1: that's really awesome, and it's cool that you're going over to Europe to study with those people too, because like there's um you know that many centuries of research into like something as simple as finishing isn't that simple you yeah know? I mean there's yeah there's a true art to it
2: well and that's that's where you know Honolulu is where the the ukulele in my opinion combined with the tradition of the ukeke and and became what everybody knows today but and everybody knows that it came from Madeira and Portugal but if we take it a step further and say where did those instruments come and evolve into being in Portugal and Madeira, all of a sudden we start going you know oh, east. Yeah. And we start have we start talking about the connection with the whole European uh, you know, string instrument tradition, which Greece was
1: before them. Yeah. I mean that goes back to, and then Egypt was before them. Exactly. And then there's like Assyrian stone carvings that show, yeah. you know, even ukulele looking type yeah but that's the point <laughs> so that's
2: the point to me is that you connect hawaii as part of the world community which is exactly what it was and is and it always has been and it's been a partner in design evolution um it's helped know.
1: propel the you know one of the aspects we love most about life yeah it's diversity good yeah. music
2: good music
0: jamming good food yeah
1: yeah i
2: mean
0: that thing sounds great man i I mean i like both tunings but i the uh, mandolin tuning is is what i prefer than the dgbe i think it just like i don't know it's jumps out a little more throaty
1: with the double basses and stuff you know yeah like when you when you octave the um two low notes you get this really cool chimey sound though that like somebody like kavika really utilizes Mm -hmm. yeah i took just the regular um uh, way it's strung there for octave mandolin and, and tuned it i think um uh gd gd i think uh-huh. what, something like that or GD, was it dg GDB, no dg maybe. no D G D G. it was just like oh. two notes
2: But yeah. well, that's I, like that's a pretty popular <laughs> fiddle tuning like a cross tuning for appalachian fiddle
1: yeah it, it's funny how it like uh sometimes with those droney kind of tunings can be so fun oh yeah Definitely. But it, it, it's kind of its own thing, but something that anybody that plays e- either ukulele or guitar can yeah. find their way with and just oh, yeah. have something that they're making a like, whole different sound What do, what do you it. think
0: like, like some seasoned ears, you know, some, someone who's played guitar for a long time and just heard audio of that, you know, like what do you, what do you think, that, would they think it is like a 12 string cabled up? or I think it sounds a little
2: different. Like a, I, you know, from what I've, so we've been selling these for about a year now. I mean, um, and everyone who gets them, the majority of people I hear back from are excited and inspired to, you know, try something, different. try something different, but it's familiar, but it's different. And, um, a lot of, you know, for myself as a mandolin player, I always felt a little frustrated when I wanted to go play a gig by myself or do an open mic because to accompany yourself with a mandolin, it's, it doesn't yeah. really support your voice, you know, when you're trying to sing. So, high. so this, all of a sudden you have all that low end and sustain and tone yeah. of a, Flat top, so you can guitar. have singer songwriter mandolin style. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. But you, you know, you don't need to find a, a guitar player and convince them to play with you. Yeah, I totally <laughs> want one, man. I totally want one. They've I know where you sold can get one. They pretty
1: fast. Every time we get a shipment, they're coming I think in they're on
2: continually one. sold out from everybody who's selling them. Which you know, that's cool. Da-da. Mostly mandolin market. <laughs> um,
1: I mean, we probably yeah, mostly uh, sell the people that are just you players wanting yeah. to try something different. But
2: right. I think it's cool that people are excited to try something new it tells you that people are, are still curious and still uh ready for to invent you know well anyone and i think who
0: enjoys something like as soon as they their head starts going like how can i join more like mm-hmm. how can it better suit me for what i like to hear right and then ideas come up but you know not everyone is uh has the pleasure of just going to work and asking a builder to right. hey what do you think about this how can you try that you know yeah. I, I think like especially Noah, he has a lot of guys that come, Hey, can you uh mm-hmm. what do you what do you think about this? You right. know, it's gotta <laughs> yeah. still be that level of experimentation. You only have so much time uh, but you know yeah. uh,
1: but it's it's hard to fit it into like, you know, making your rent for the month or yeah. whatever. But um they you know they say artists starve sometimes you gotta <laughs> you starve got to. for a little while just to like try different things and and uh, you know, it's like the sounds that the, the instruments create are part of what at least inspires um, the music that you make, you know? So something that is making different sounds is going to, you know, you're going to play off off of that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's going to be something where like, you know, for creators, new and different styled instruments are a real inspiration.
2: Definitely. And it's, you know, coming up with something new coming out of Hawaii is an old tradition. I think,
1: yeah. Well, yeah, it's bringing it back because you're not bringing in something totally that's you know never been in here. Yeah, this is like over here before any of us were born. Definitely. (laughs) But hey, um, thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You know, I'm looking forward. I've been to the Bishop Museum a few times, and it's really disappointing the. Because I I've talked to people that have donated you know yeah. ukes and different right. instruments, so it's like I want to see more music displays. But hopefully yeah. you can help them sort that out. Well,
2: they've been on they're they're on board, and we're you know we're just trying to as you m- may know like you know museum exhibitions are really expensive, so we're we're putting together. Um, I think what, what what my goal would be is to start with the ukulele, you know, start with this really traditional Hawaiian traditional Hawaiian instrument. Talk about what role it played in culture in uh pre you know captain cook times hawaii and um and then talk about how that in combination with the portuguese instruments evolved into the ukulele and and then talk about the martin's relationship with hawaii and that whole evolution um and then take it a step further and talk about what are people building today have a whole wing of the exhibit on contemporary ukuleles mm. in the world and bring in you know chuck moore with the hokulea ukulele mm. God, i mean can you imagine how cool like, that that be and then have uh live demonstrations have live concerts you know i've talked with some really um major heavy ukulele talents and they want to be involved they want to come and uh, my thought was why not take these really treasured old museum instruments they have a they have a ukulele, uh, augusto diaz that was given by Kalakawa to a w- friend of his as a gift. Why not take that ukulele and give it to the in the hands of someone who's an amazing player and have them play one of Kalakawa's compositions on that ukulele for oh, people, you know? Be. Like, just bring it full circle and um, and let people hear these instruments. And it, it's, a, it, it would be a, it's a challenge because a lot of them are in uh, rough shape um, and there's always a fine line to walk between conservation but and restoration. Get you to know. set them up. yeah. Yeah, no, but I think they should all be fixed and played, but... Or at least displayed, I mean... Yeah, well, we're going to put them on display, and I I think my goal would be that the bishop dedicate a permanent wing to the music and the string band traditions of Hawaii and it would be an attraction to people. No, I get it. They, the they don't
1: just like throw stuff up. I mean, they have like very nice displays for everything. Very thought out, everything. very beautiful. I mean, yeah. it's a world-class
2: museum, it really is. But
1: they yeah. they got to get that that end of it cuz I know they got the instruments. So, yeah, help them yeah. sort that out and 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 then work work along with um, you know, some of the people that have really studied Hawaiian history and yeah, the language exactly. and stuff on that book. That's going to be awesome, man.
2: I I just So when I was in Cremona, I met this violin maker who actually is moving out here to build instruments with me in my shop. And we had this great idea to build a Koa violin and ukulele matched pair, (laughs) you know, to draw that connection. And so I was at the Bishop when we were going through their string instruments and, uh, uncover this old dusty case a violin case and i open it up and sure enough there's a koa violin <laughs> uh, from like but 19 you know 20 you something do something original huh? so no it's all been done before but <laughs> but not the we can not that not this exactly we have can we can try to do things have you tried building an yet? i haven't but they're, they're, they're you know, per- the
1: first King Kamehameha could play the ukeke and two nose flutes all at the same time. Really? Yeah. No, I don't know what
2: I'm oh, talking about. Oh, well, it might be true. <laughs> it might be true. You know, I think that... Uh, Whoa, I just saw a picture. <laughs> <laughs> I saw people holding it for them. I think one of the tragedies in, in the way people have studied history is that they send in people who are um, really well-trained in one culture and really uh, established as authorities and they send them to a new culture and expect them to walk away with an understanding of of what they're seeing or hearing, you know? So this, this notion that, um, there were no string instruments or there was no melody in Hawaiian music was come up with by people who in effect I would say were deaf and blind, you know, to what they were witnessing. So, um, no, they were when just I, like when stuck up. I mean they were well, snobs. There was a lot of there was a lot of that. I mean, there's a famous um musicologist, Helen Roberts, who came here in the nineteen twenties and worked with the bishop and she tried to catalog on behalf of the United States government, tried to catalog Hawaiian music and what it was. And I think she tried her best, but um it's like it's like asking uh, you know, a blind person to go into a museum and, and talk about the art. You don't have the understanding of what you're seeing and hearing to say whether or not it's this or that you know i don't think so it's Mm, it's a really it's a really limited perspective so i think there's a lot of room to go back and really talk about um kind of make a correction to our well i think so yeah 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 yeah. i think so i I, I I mean there
1: there just wasn't a whole lot of writing back then and stuff but you know if you went by that uh, you know nowadays like say like you could go onto youtube and see all kinds of amazing music getting crapped all over so yeah I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't trust what people say anyway. No. Yeah, but, but when I it, when I hear, you know, some of the oldest music that came from the islands, I think it's super dope.
2: Yeah. I mean, to me, like, a lot of the complexity that I hear in, in chanting sounds to me like as complex and evolved as, like, John Coltrane's later work. It's mm. incredibly complex musically. And uh, I think you have to be I mean, careful not to judge things you don't know anything about <laughs> yeah, know. it's
0: an it's an inspiring inspiring story just because uh my, you know i grew up all my life here it's kind of like makes it a little more special to me it's like oh yeah. ooh, it kind of creates this little bit of a you know maybe there's something still left here you oh know, there's, there's, there's so there. much <laughs> i mean there's, well,
2: uh, that's one thing i you know fixing instruments here i'm really fortunate because i know a lot of people because i fix all their instruments and i'll know two people who live like one valley over and they both play the exact same style of slack key and uh they don't know each other somehow it's like it's it blows my mind sometimes but um i feel really blessed to have been sort of a a hub in the instrument world here fixing stuff for people
1: yeah we send we send a lot of people to Island, um you can go on to krstrings.com and probably you know yeah. find his contact. I've got some info cool there. uh
2: old there's a old Nunes restoration we did this ukulele was a mess. We brought it completely back to life. That's photo documented on there. It's yeah. And I, I as I do, I'm trying to my challenge now is to make time to do the writing and the research and keep up with the repair in the building. <laughs> so When when does uh
1: the violin maker come?
2: He's here. He's oh. been he's been here working in the shop and oh. he's learning a lot about the ukulele. So are, you th-
1: are you guys going to be manufacturers yeah. now or, you know, custom builders? <laughs> His
2: violins that he builds um you know, kind of start at like 20k, so oh. he's kind of in that like classical violin making world, but I want, you know, the 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 violin ukulele matched pair that I want to do to kind of draw that connection between Hawaii and and Europe, um, there's a style of Stradivari violin where he does this engraving, like a floral kind of engraving. You'll see, like the, when he made an instrument for uh, the Queen of France, he would make it totally decked out. And um, just like when the Martin Guitar Company made instruments for the Royal Hawaiian band, they decked them out. You know, they were like the top of the line. So I want to do that. But instead of inlaying like deer and European flora, I want to do like tarot leaves and You know, (laughs) poi pounders and pig and local local stuff. Very cool. Yeah, Milo Milo might be a good wood for violin too. Back and sides, dense. You know. Yeah. So yeah, we're shooting to uh, exhibit at the uh, Wood Guild show next year. We gotta get to work. We gotta get to work. (laughs) Joel, I'm busy, man. (laughs) Crazy.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, yeah. you know, I mean it's it's awesome having you in Hawaii. You yeah. can play any style of music, but uh <laughs> you you still have a bluegrass band and to install I
2: I quit the band to make time for this research and uh oh, right fixing on, all my favorite people's instruments. That's so cool. Keep keep but yeah, thank you guys too for, for setting this the bar high for people doing what you do. It's amazing. And I think you're creating, you know, the community to support this kind of research and and so we can all really treasure these instruments and these songs and Thanks, styles man. of music yeah.
1: appreciate it, me and, me and Kylan we go way back <laughs> we worked together for a while there at had Kola. a lot of late nights yeah. <laughs> and um, neither one of us is, is drinking right now but yeah. when you do see us <laughs> who knows
2: I could, I could have some sake maybe down the road, sake is pretty clean sake or vodka, yeah. I just can't do beer or wine anymore Oh, or, really? Or tequila. <laughs> no more.
1: Uh, I'm just going to take a good long break. Yeah. I'll wait till NAMM uh. <laughs> <laughs> when I really need it. Oh. Well, thanks for tuning in, guys. And um, thank you, Kylan. That was all very interesting. Totally cool. See you guys next time. Aloha.